So as many of you know, from time to time, Pastor Jeff invites me to fill the pulpit, maybe four or five or six times a year. And this is a good time, I suppose, since he has finished his series on Exodus, and we're waiting to hear what he is going to be preaching on next. So today I would like to draw our attention to Matthew chapter 18. I've been preaching on Matthew 18 very slowly over the past four years or so, and uh, we're in chapter 18 now. Um, I'd like to draw your attention to the text that's printed for you in the bulletin there on pages 9 and 10. Um, I didn't request this, but I think Pastor Jeff picked the NIV for the the text here, uh, which is actually good because I did have one uh, slight difference with the ESV translation uh, on verse 7. The ESV translates verse 7 as, woe to the world for temptations to sin. But the NIV translates it as, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble, which I think is probably a little bit more accurate and helpful. But let us now give our attention to the reading of God's word. Would you please rise and we will read Matthew 18 in the NIV. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. 
For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not even seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. And he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. You may be seated. Let's ask the Lord to be with us as we hear his word proclaimed. O God, as we now come to hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may humbly receive what you have to say to us today from your scriptures. Open our eyes to see our Lord Jesus in his beauty and glory. Subdue our wills that we may follow him and do your will. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So the Gospel of Matthew is very concerned with the theme of discipleship. If you go back a couple of chapters to Matthew 16, right after Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus begins to tell the disciples that he is going to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and of course, Peter would have nothing to do with that. He says, far be it from you, Lord. The Lord turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me. But then Jesus takes this opportunity to tell his disciples that they too must take up their cross. Verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the call to discipleship. And of course, we know how the Gospel of Matthew ends as well, with the Great Commission at the very end. The risen Christ commissions his disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations by baptizing them and by teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. So discipleship is a major theme in the Gospel of Matthew. But when we come to Matthew chapter 18, we find out that this call to discipleship is not an individualistic call. At first, it sounds that way. He says, take up your cross, not somebody else's cross. You are to follow the Lord Jesus yourself as an individual. 
But we learn in Matthew 18 that it's not just about the lone individual following Christ by himself. It starts there, but it doesn't end there. True discipleship occurs in community in the context of our relationships with one another as fellow disciples of Jesus. And in this passage, we can break it down into three parts and see that discipleship in community means three things. First, it means receiving those whom Christ receives. That's the thrust of verses 1 through 14. Second, it means being accountable to Christ's church. That's the focus of verses 15 to 20. And then third, discipleship in community means forgiving even as Christ has forgiven us. Verses 21 to 35. <clears throat> so let's look first at discipleship in community means receiving those whom Christ receives. Now verses 1 through 14 at first does not seem like a very unified paragraph it has some things in it that seem out of place especially the part in verses 7 through 9 that I mentioned before about the stumbling blocks and about how if your hand or your foot causes you to sin you should cut it off and throw it away that part there seems not to fit <clears throat> very well into the whole context but actually it does fit and you can see that there's a unified theme here <clears throat> if you look at this phrase that is used throughout the paragraph it's used three times and it's this phrase that Jesus uses to describe disciples he calls them one of these little ones it's used in verse 6 whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble it's used in verse 10 see that you do not despise one of these little ones and it's used again in verse 14 uh, that the father uh, does not desire that any one of these little ones should perish. <clears throat> the main point of this first paragraph then is that discipleship in community means receiving those whom Christ receives. Whoever receives one such child in my name, <clears throat> verse 5, receives me. <clears throat> in other words, Jesus is saying that we must not despise our fellow Christians, but we must receive them. <clears throat> and why is that? The reason is because we too are sinners saved by the grace of God. And so therefore we must treat the other disciples of Christ, the little ones who believe in Jesus, we must treat them the same way that we have been treated. Notice how the discussion here was started out by the disciples in verse 1 when they asked Jesus, who is the greatest? in the kingdom and Jesus responded by taking a little child and we know from the word that's used there that it's a little child someone who's younger than the age of seven and he puts that little child in the midst of them and he says truly I say to you unless you turn and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven becoming a disciple of Jesus starts out with being humbled it starts out with admitting your sinfulness and recognizing the depth of your need of God's grace and so that's the point then if we are humble if we know our own need then we will also receive our fellow disciples humility is the starting point humility is the prerequisite for receiving those whom Christ receives this is the first thing we must do as disciples in community we must receive accept and embrace all whom Christ receives 
accepts and embraces. Verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. All too often, we as Christians have a judgmental spirit toward other Christians with whom we disagree or with whom we have a difficulty. We treat them as second-class citizens, as inferior to us. Sometimes we engage in a harsh and judgmental spirit. We act with spiritual pride and arrogance toward our fellow disciples. We exclude them and put them down. According to what Jesus is saying here in this text, these types of behaviors are very, very serious in the eyes of the Lord. When we engage in such behaviors of excluding and putting down and not receiving and embracing the fellow disciples of Christ, we are in danger of causing Jesus' little ones to stumble, which I think is probably best understood as injuring them spiritually. Not necessarily causing them to sin, but injuring them spiritually. Jesus isn't talking about some sort of superficial offense where somebody said something that kind of annoyed you and you were offended for 20 minutes. He's talking about something more serious. He's talking about something where we do damage to the faith of another disciple. We devastate them. We cause them to fall into deep spiritual discouragement. So serious is this crime that Jesus says we ought to take extreme measures to avoid spiritually damaging a, a fellow disciple in this way. And that's the point of that paragraph in verses 7 through 9 that sort of sticks out and doesn't seem to fit very well into the paragraph. He says, Woe to the world for stumbling blocks, for it is necessary that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the one by whom the stumbling blocks come. For if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or, or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Not to take this literally. Literally, you, If we took it literally, everybody would be without their eyes and their hands and their feet. But he's saying we should take extreme measures to avoid the sin of causing another disciple to stumble and perhaps even to fall away because of the way that we treat them. How we treat fellow disciples of Jesus is a fundamentally important matter. And it's the number one area, according to Jesus, where we need to grow in the area of discipleship in community. What right do we have to refuse to receive those whom Christ receives? If Christ has received them, if they are one of his little ones, if they believe in Jesus, what right do we have to shun them, to separate ourselves from them, to make ourselves feel superior to them? Christ has received them. Christ is for them. He even says that their angels in heaven always see the face of the Father. And so that's the first and most basic aspect of discipleship in community. The second area of discipleship in community, according to our text, is that we must be accountable to Christ's church, verses 15 through 20. And this is that famous paragraph 
where Jesus gives a three-stage procedure for church discipline. And I have to admit, this is, this is not an easy topic to talk about. I've never preached on this passage before. But it's an important thing that it's, it's in the Word of God, it's in the Scriptures, and so we need to hear what Christ has to say to us uh, in this passage. Jesus gives a three-stage procedure for church discipline. The first stage is this, going to the person in private and showing them their offense with the goal of seeking their repentance and restoration. The key here in stage one is the phrase where it says, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That phrase, between you and him alone, shows that it's a private matter. At this stage, we are to treat the sinning brother as a genuine brother in Christ, and we're to go to them in private and to seek their repentance and restoration. Paul said the same thing in Second Thessalonians. There was a situation going on there in the church where some individuals in the church were being idle and they, they didn't want to get a job and they were mooching off of people in the church. And Paul says he wants the church to begin this first step of, of church discipline, of admonition. And this is what he says. He says, do not regard the brother as an enemy, but rather admonish him as a brother. Second Thessalonians 3.15. That's the, the key thing here, is that in this first stage, you come to the person pastorally, you come to them as a brother and say, brother, this is, this is not consistent with what it means to profess faith in Christ. And you seek their restoration and reclamation. The second stage, though, is if they won't listen to you, then you repeat the first stage, but now in the presence of two or three other disciples. This is in keeping with the requirement in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, that says only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Bringing along two or three others serves as an independent witness to the fact that this person is still being unrepentant and still being stubborn in refusing to repent. I think that this stage, stage two, where it talks about bringing two or three others along, is where the elders are getting involved. And the reason I believe this is because if you look at the whole context here, you see that uh, there's this discussion of binding and loosing. It's in verse 18 where he says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Which goes back actually to the, the chapter, a few chapters back, chapter 16, where uh, after Peter confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus said, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So you have that same language of binding and loosing that's also used here in chapter 18, verse 18. The keys of the kingdom were given to Peter and the apostles, and of course today Peter and the apostles, they, they've died and they're no longer with us, but the keys of the kingdom continue to be exercised by the elders of the church. This interpretation is reinforced by looking at verses 19 and 20. In verse 19, Jesus says, Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. 
four, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus is still talking about church discipline in verses 19 to 20. A lot of times people take those verses out of context and say it's just referring to an impromptu prayer meeting where two or three Christians get together and pray. But in the context, it's still talking about church discipline. In fact, you can tell that because of the language of on earth and in heaven, right? Verse 19, if two of you agree on earth, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, which is the same thing that Jesus said in verse 18. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Another thing that connects it is the, the reference to two or three. Verse 20, where two or three are gathered, well, that ties back to verse 16. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three. And so this shows then that when the two or three are gathered, those are the two or three elders that are gathered as a, as a church court to conduct church discipline. It even says that they're gathered in my name, verse 20, which is very important because when the elders gather in order to conduct church discipline, they're not just doing it in their own authority. They're gathering and doing this work under the authority of Christ and in the name of Christ. And therefore, their authority is limited by Christ's authority. They only have the right to discipline someone whom Christ would discipline and not to uh, excommunicate someone that Christ would not excommunicate. So that's the second stage where the elders are involved. Then the third stage is that if after all these efforts the person still refuses to repent, then the whole church is to be informed and the offender is to be excommunicated, that is to be put out of the church and treated as an unbeliever. Now we have to admit that this whole discussion of church discipline makes us a bit nervous because it is sadly the case that church discipline has often gone awry in the history of the church. There have been many cases of churches that have abused this authority, have misused it, uh, maybe just as a way to get rid of someone in the church that they don't like. But in spite of our fears, we must be obedient to the teaching of Jesus. I like the way our Book of Church Order for our denomination puts it. The Book of Church Order says that church discipline is important because it vindicates the honor of Christ and it maintains the purity of His church. That's why it's so important that we do this in obedience to Christ. Can you imagine if the church never exercised church discipline, what that would result in? The honor of Christ would be dragged into the streets the purity of the church would be completely violated and there would be no sense of the holiness of the church of Jesus Christ. Those are very important aims, to vindicate the honor of Christ, to maintain the purity of the church. But according to our text, the most important aim or purpose behind church discipline is the reclaiming and restoration of the erring brother. Jesus makes that point very clear in our text. Not only in verse 15, where he says, start off privately with just you and the brother, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, and if he listens to you, what? You have gained your brother. That's the whole point of this process, to gain him, to reclaim him from his sin, to bring him back. 
We can even see that more clearly in the preceding context, which we didn't really look at carefully. But if you go back to verses 12 and 13, there's this mini parable of the shepherd and the sheep, right? He says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. That's the goal of church discipline, is to reclaim the erring brother, to bring the lost sheep back. Excommunication, the third stage, is a last resort. It's only when the person has hardened their heart and, quote-unquote, refuses, I love this language, refuses to listen even to the church. That makes it clear that you're not just disciplining them because they sinned once. You're disciplining them because their heart is hardened. They've rejected the voice of the church calling them and pleading them to come back. They've hardened their heart. That's why excommunication is a last resort. I personally believe that many of those abuses that we've seen uh, in the church uh, where church discipline has been abused would be avoided if the church would simply follow the teaching of Jesus here in this passage. If the church would follow these steps. I think so often the church falls into error in this by skipping the first step by jumping right to excommunication. When doing church discipline, the church must never skip the first step of approaching the person pastorally out of brotherly concern. As Paul said, not treating them as an enemy, but admonishing them as a brother and seeking to reclaim them, seeking to bring the lost sheep back. If we would only do that, we would avoid so many problems and abuses. And so this is then the second area of discipleship in community. Discipleship in community not only means accepting those whom Christ accepts, but then there's sort of the other side of that, which means putting out of the church those whom Christ does not accept. If it's clear by their unrepentant heart and by their stubbornness, by, by their refusal to listen to the church, that they are not truly a believer then they must be put out of the church. So discipleship in community for us means being accountable to Christ's church. And ultimately that means being accountable to Christ himself. The church represents the authority of Christ himself. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. If the church discipline was done properly according to these three steps, and if the person truly is in this state of having hardened their heart against the Lord, then whatever the church binds on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever the church looses on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The decisions of the church on earth have the authority of Christ in heaven behind them. Discipleship in community, then, means being accountable to Christ by being accountable to his church. What about the third aspect in verses 21 through 35. This is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Discipleship in community here means forgiving even as Christ has forgiven us. I think this parable is given here because it sort of connects back to that first stage of confrontation, doesn't it? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But then that sort of raises the question, Peter asks the question, Lord, how many times do I have to go through that? 
How many times will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And Peter throws out what he thinks is a very generous number. How about if we say seven? That's a good limit. And what does Jesus say to him? I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Actually, it could be translated different ways, either seventy-seven or seventy times seven. Either way, it's basically saying that the grace of God is infinite and that we must always forgive if our brother repents. The key element of the parable is clearly the comparison of the size of the two debts, right? Jesus gives the parable. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him, according to the NIV, 10,000 bags of, of silver, but it's 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And so the servant, unable to pay this, he fell on his knees imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That sounds great. But then what happens? When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him this very small amount, only 100 denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him and said, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. But he refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. 10,000 talents versus 100 denarii. Let's explain the math there. One talent is worth 6,000 denarii. So if you do the math, 10,000 talents is worth 60 million denarii. A denarius is basically a one coin that you would get in that first century period of time, if you were a day laborer, you would get one denarius for doing one day's worth of work out in the fields. And so if one denarius is one day's worth of work, you can do the math. It's going to take you thousands of lifetimes to be able to pay 60 million denarii. There's no way you could pay it. It's impossible. The debt of our sin against God is so much greater than the debt of sin that our brother owes to us. And so if we receive the forgiveness of God for our huge debt, our enormous debt of our sins, then how much more should we forgive our fellow believers? I love verse 27. Look at verse 27 because in the terms of the parable, it's basically the gospel, isn't it? Verse 27 says, Out of pity for him, the master of that servant, that is our Lord Jesus, released him. And did what? He didn't just release him and he didn't just give him what he asked for because the servant asked to be given more time so that he could pay it back. He didn't even do that. He said he forgave him the whole debt. He just canceled the whole thing and said, you don't have to pay it at all. That's the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? The Lord has released us and forgiven our debt of 60 million denarii. He's completely canceled it. We don't have to pay it. Praise God. We're free. Our sins are forgiven, brothers and sisters. We're completely and totally forgiven. We don't even have to do anything to try to prove that we're worthy of it. He's already released us. He's already freed us by His grace. He paid the price on the cross for us. He took the load that we could never take, that 60 million load of debt, and He paid it for us on the cross. 
unimaginable grace, free and full forgiveness of all our sins, of an enormous debt that we would never, ever in a million years be able to pay ourselves. And so then we must listen to the words of the Master when he says to the unforgiving servant, verse 32, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? God has forgiven us. How can we then refuse to forgive our fellow disciples? If we fail to give grace to our brothers and sisters when they come to us and apologize and repent, it shows that we are blind to how much grace we have received from God. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 4.32. He said, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And so we've kind of come full circle, haven't we? Because we started out in the first section looking at this little child and how we need to humble ourselves like little children. This is the essence of the gospel. Discipleship in community means living out the implications of God's grace, recognizing how much we've been forgiven, recognizing how much we have received from, from God and His mercy and grace, and therefore extending that same grace and mercy to others. We could put it this way. We could say this. Vertical grace, that's the grace that we've received from God vertically, demands horizontal grace. That is expressing that same grace within the community of the body of Christ, loving one another, forgiving one another when they sin against you and, and ask for your forgiveness and showing and incarnating the reality of the gospel of grace in our relationships within the body of Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you for our Lord's call to discipleship and community. Teach us what it means to pursue that costly discipleship in the context of our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. Help us to receive those whom Christ receives. Teach us humility. Help us to be accountable to Christ's church, to listen to the church when we're called to repentance. Cause us to see that we have received so much grace from you, such infinite grace, that we must also extend that same love and forgiveness and grace to one another. This we ask in Jesus' name.